You're listening to a sermon series by Grace City Church, a church plant in Green Square in Sydney. For more information about us, visit gracecity.com.au. Well, good day there. It's great to be with you. My name is Tim, and we're thinking about uh, sort of the hashtag words of violence, more like uh, the topic freedom of speech today. Uh, and to jump in, I wonder how many of you remember this video. Obviously, it's a screenshot, uh, but it was part of a somewhat clunky initiative by the Bible Society in which they partnered with the brewing company Cooper's to release a limited edition light beer that celebrated 200 years of the Bible Society's work. Um, If you're wondering what's the connection between Cooper's and the Bible Society, uh, Cooper's is a family-owned business run by Christians. What made it so controversial, though, is that as part of the advertising campaign, they released this video in which two members of parliament discuss their different views on same-sex marriage under the banner, keeping it light, right? Because they're drinking light beer. Um, And the idea was that the video was supposed to demonstrate how to engage in respectful and uh, charitable dialogue while disagreeing over important ideas. And so the guy on the right uh, is named Andrew Hastie. He's a Christian man who was against the changing of the definition to marriage. So this is from 2017, sort of in the lead-up to the plebiscite on uh, changing the definition of marriage. And then the guy on the left is named Tim Wilson. He's a gay guy who was in favour of changing the definition. So um, on the right, he wasn't in favour. On the left, he was. Anyway, the video, frankly, if you watch the video, is a little bit clunky and awkward. Um, But the backlash to that video was huge. Within minutes, you might recall, within minutes of it going up, um, social media blew up, uh, the pubs and a whole bunch of people started boycotting Cooper's beer, uh, not just the beer, uh, the, the light beer, but beer full stop. You know, we're not selling Cooper's beer in our pub here. Uh, and in the end, the pressure was so great that the owners of Cooper pulled the beer, they apologised for what they did, and then they released their own video coming out in favour of same-sex marriage. Um, And again, if you recall, the first video was kind of clunky, but the second one where the owners this time sort of came out and said, you know, we're sorry, you know, we didn't condone this and we're we're not, um, you know, we're in favour of same-sex marriage. It was just painful to watch. Go back and watch it online. They look exhausted. They look like they haven't slept in a week and just look utterly defeated. Anyway, the whole thing was a moment of tragic irony, And I say it's ironic because the initiative was supposed to encourage respectful and reasoned discussion, but what it ended up doing was prompting what some have called the end of free speech in Australia. See, uh, for example, Murray Campbell uh, is the pastor of a church called Mentone Baptist in uh, Victoria, I think it is. Uh, He's a blogger and social commentator. He wrote this in the wake of kind of the Cooper's ad. As the day of free speech in Australia has come to an end. From today, public speech comes with a cost. In some formal sense, free speech will exist tomorrow morning, but in practice, a cacophonous minority have succeeded in shouting down reasoned and respectful, respectful speech. I remember one year ago referring to freedom of speech as the Gordian knot of our time. I looked up what Gordian knot means. I'm still not sure, but you get the vibe. Well, today the sword has been taken out of its sheath and cut right through the ropes. Free speech is gone and what we have left is costly speech. 
To speak truth will cost. To suggest an alternative narrative will have you branded as bigot and more. Now, whether you agree with all the details, I think the end point is actually, it's right, right? Uh, Even if we are still technically free to speak our minds in Australia, uh, the cost of doing so has really increased over the last couple of years. Uh, Now, speaking your mind can impact your income, your reputation, uh, and potentially even your life. So let me give you maybe just another couple of examples. Cast your mind back over the couple of year, last couple of years in Australia, and what do we see? Well, uh, you might remember Rugby Australia sacked Israel Folau after he posted something on his personal social media page that warned that hell awaited drunks, homosexuals, adulterers, liars, and thieves who didn't repent and trust in Jesus. Now, just to be clear, I think it was a stupid post. The thing is, as offensive as it is, it is kind of what the Bible says. It's, it's actually just a paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 6. And yet, Israel Folau lost his job for saying it, even though it was, it was on his personal social media page. Second of all, uh, then there were the calls to change the name of Margaret Court Arena, right? like a tennis stadium, I think it's in Perth. Uh, it was named after Margaret Court. Uh, she used to be a professional tennis player. She's now a Pentecostal minister. She sort of came out and said, you know, I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. And all of a sudden, there were calls to change the name of the Margaret Court Arena. Uh, third was the call for Scott Morrison. You might remember this from last year. Last year? This year? Maybe it's this year. Uh, to dump Catherine Deves as the... Lib- it was this year, wasn't it? As the Liberal candidate for Warringah. Uh, after it was discovered that she described trans kids as surgically mutilated. Now, she apologised for what she described as inappropriate language in communicating her arguments for the safety of women and girls, but the damage was done. Uh, Not only did the New South Wales Premier, Matt Keane, call her a bigot and claim that she was persecuting uh, people based on her gender, she actually also received a whole bunch of anonymous death threats. Now... Uh, The point of giving you the illustrations is not that we get into the weeds and the details on each of them, because frankly, I think we could offer critiques on all three of the examples I just gave you. Uh, The point of raising them is really just to to communicate the point that the the cost of speech has become increasingly more expensive in recent years. Uh, In particular, any kind of speech that challenges or differs from the secular ideology on issues of sex and gender. Just think about it. Uh, you might have been just sort of sitting there and listening and uh, you might maybe thought, Tim, like, can you just get over it? Uh, why are Christians like you always banging on about sex and gender? Right? You, you guys are just obsessed. Well, my honest response is I don't think Christians are the ones who, who are obsessed on this issue. I think it's our culture. You see, think about it. This is a talk on speech not sex and gender, but it just so happens that in my research, all the examples that I could find of where speech has been started to be limited or uh, people are being cancelled for what they say, all revolve around the issues of sex and gender. And so uh, Steve McAlpine, who, uh, he's a blogger and a social commentator, but mostly a pastor, (laughs) Uh, he's uh, pastors a church in Perth, he writes this, what we have learned the past few years and it is only a few years, is that secularism has bottomed out 
And lo and behold, it's bottomed out on the issue of sex. I think I'm going to start calling it sexualism. Stumbled over that one, didn't I? And to that end, secularism is not the friend it seemed to be, and which we, as a minority in Australia at least, assumed it would always be, allowing us to play marbles in the corner of the schoolyard. It's going to start playing rough, throwing its weight around and stealing our lunch money. Put simply, secularism is going to play the playground bully, and especially in areas of sex. Again, I don't think it's Christians who are obsessed with sex. It's secularism. It's our culture that is obsessed with sex. And so like a bully, it's trying to intimidate anyone who puts forward a different narrative and kind of bully them into submission and silence. It's also why it's not just Christians who get cancelled, by the way. Uh, It's anyone who differs from or challenges the ideology of our day. So how are we going to move forward? Well, uh, this morning I want to try and do three things with you. Number one, I together just want to interrogate some of the popular reasons given for limiting the freedom of speech. Second of all, I want to explore what does the Bible say about speech more generally. And then third, I want to try and offer some practical next steps if you're a believer in Jesus. So first, let's just interrogate some of the popular reasons given for why we should limit free speech. Second, we'll step back and say, what does the Bible speak about, uh, say about speech in general and how we use our words? And then third, offer some practical next steps. So that's, that's where we're going. As we first jump in, I want to explore uh, two of the popular reasons that are usually given for uh, limiting freedom of speech, partly because we should just know what's out there and also, you know, you want to give credit where credit is due and understand how someone thinks. And so let's try and do that together. The first reason that is normally given is some version of this, right? It's to protect the vulnerable. It's to protect the vulnerable. And so one of the biggest challenges about having conversations on sex and gender, uh, certainly in recent times, is that the conversation itself either never begins or it gets shut down fairly quickly in the name of protecting uh, minority identities or sexual minorities. And so, for example... Uh, in response to the decision of the Manly Seven, right? Remember a couple of weeks back, um, the Manly guys didn't wear the Pride jersey. Uh, in response to them refusing to wear that jersey, queer activist Chanel Lai wrote this. It says, as for those religious extremists, I think that's not just, I don't know if that's referring to the Seven or sort of the Seven and, you know, people who were on their side, so to speak. But anyway, they've driven queer people into a life of pain, misery and death and God will never forgive them for it. Queer people are not more likely to attempt suicide because they are queer. Queer people are more likely to attempt suicide because of how society treats them for being queer. For this writer and others like them, the idea seems to be that for the seven men to refuse wearing the jersey, it wasn't just that they were you know, standing up for their religious convictions on the issues of sex and gender. Uh, Even if that's what they thought they were doing, at best, they were dangerously naive. Because what they were actually doing, by refusing to wear the the jersey, and then a bunch of people sort of jumping to their support and saying, no, it's okay. What that was doing, according to uh, Chanel Lai, was really communicating to LGBT people that they are second-class citizens, 
and that there is no place for them in our community at large. And really to do that, to say that to a group of people who, uh, many of whom are sort of have dangerously high or tragically high suicide rates already, that's not only unkind, it's reckless. it's, It's to risk pushing some of them over the edge to actually say, go and do it. Now, even if you agree, uh, disagree with that way of reading the situation, as I do, I hope you can at the very least uh, appreciate the weight of the argument. See, for a lot of people, the desire to limit certain kinds of speech is not about trying to get power and control. It's actually about trying to protect those without any power or control. It's about standing up for those who are vulnerable and seeking to protect them, to to work in their favour, to do good for them, to protect them from ideas and um, messages that might hurt and and harm them. So again, I think it's usually coming from a good place. What's more, I think we need to appreciate that all of us are almost certainly in favour of limiting the freedom of speech, in some areas at least, for similar kinds of reasons. So let me give you an example. I suspect most of us would probably be okay with limiting the freedom of someone to be able to stand up in a movie theatre, in a crowded movie theatre, and yell, fire. We we don't think you should be free to do that. Why? Well, because it puts people at severe risk of being trampled. In other words, I I suspect most of us are in favour of some kind of limitations to the freedom of speech to protect vulnerable people at least to some degree. So the question we need to wrestle with is this. Is it, well, is whether silencing contrary opinions is really the most helpful thing for um, protecting vulnerable people? Or maybe to put it slightly differently, is it the case that, you know, refusing to wear the jersey or uh, articulating a position about marriage that says marriage, according to the Bible, is between a man and a woman. That's God's plans for marriage. Or uh, questioning trans ideology. Is it the case that that is uh, almost the equivalent of yelling fire in a crowded movie theatre? Well, I don't think so. What's more, I think by silencing contrary opinions, we actually end up doing more harm than good. So, for example, think it, think it through with me. Uh, can I get a show of hands? Uh, who here, before they buy something or pay for a service or anything like that, goes online and reads the reviews? That's what I suspect. Most of us do it, right? So if I'm about to buy a book, I'm, I want to know, what do people say? Now, imagine that you go online and you read the reviews, but you filter out all the bad reviews, right? You only read the five-star reviews. That's not going to give you a full picture, is it? Now, if you want to get a, a real sense of what this is like, you need to read both the good reviews and the bad reviews and then sort of make an informed decision on the basis of the competing ideas. Well, the question we have to ask is why would it be any different with issues of, say, sex and gender? So, for example, we're often told that the only course of action for people who identify as trans is to transition. And the suggestion seems to be that any other alternative view is not only bigoted, it also risks pushing them over the edge and causing them to commit suicide. The problem with that approach is that it is silencing the growing number of voices of people who de-transition and are offering their own one-star reviews of the whole process. Now, yeah, it's possible 
that exposing people to multiple viewpoints may well cause some to experience greater levels of stress and anxiety. But I think that's worth it in the search for honesty and truth and a solution that actually helps as many people as possible. So there's the, f- the first reason given and why I question whether it's all that helpful. Uh, it's to protect the vulnerable. But is it really protecting the vulnerable? I'm not sure. The second reason often given in favour of limiting freedom of speech is to promote diversity and inclusion. Now, there's a bit of irony to this one, but uh, you'll notice, or you've probably noticed, diversity, inclusion, they're sort of key buzzwords in recent years. And it it does seem like they are often the reasons given for cancelling people or for limiting what they're allowed to say. So, for example, um, Israel Folau, he was sacked by Rugby Australia. So that's Rugby Union. But then he wasn't allowed to join the NRL, which is a different code of rugby. Uh, and the reason was given that he doesn't f- he's in breach of our inclusiveness values or our inclusiveness culture. So he, we are inclusive, so he's in breach and he's not allowed to join. Or uh, think about the Margaret Court thing. So part of the reasons given for renaming the Margaret Court Arena, and I quote was that intolerance has no place in tennis. So we're not going to tolerate the view that marriage is between a man and a woman, because that's intolerant. Or third, uh, the manly jersey, right? Uh, It was dubbed the inclusiveness jersey, such that anyone who disagreed or uh, didn't want to wear it was deemed as um, exclusive or uninclusive. Now again, there's a degree of irony here, and I suspect you, like me, find it hard to see past that. But... I think it's helpful for us to to just be aware that the meaning of, or at least the understanding of what it means to be accepting, inclusive and tolerant has experienced something of a shift or at least a change in definition in recent years. And so let me um, share with you some research. Um, McCrindle Research, actually just earlier this year in June or July, I think it was this year, they released a study called Cancel Culture and Acceptance in Australia. And at one point in the study, Mark McCrindle says this. He says, it's remarkable how the concept of tolerance has changed in Australia. In the span of a generation, it shifted from accepting the individual, even if disagreeing with their worldview or practice, to now coupling the individual with their beliefs and identities. More than half of Australians view accepting as not just a respect for the individual, but supporting their practice or worldview. Now, that's quite a shift from what the results used to be. We used to separate the two, now we combine them. But he goes on, for one in three Australian teenagers and 20-something, so Gen Z, acceptance of someone is also involves advocating for their practice or worldview. Now, again, I, I personally find it bizarre But I do think this helps us to understand how someone can both be an advocate for inclusion and exclude someone on the basis of their views. Because in the way that our society at least has started to think, tolerance, acceptance, inclusion, well, they don't just mean accepting the individual. We now think inclusion, acceptance, tolerance means accepting the individual and their view. And for a third of teenagers, it means actually advocating for their view. But again, the question you've got to ask is, 
does that approach really lead to diversity and inclusion? If that's what we want, is limiting and is that what it's getting for us? Well, again, I just don't think so. See, at the end of the day, secularism, it may want a diversity of people, but only if it can get it with a uniformity of speech. And so it, it always silences anyone who comes up with an alternative view. But it doesn't take a genius to figure out that's, that's not really diversity. Uh, it's a false diversity. It's a sham diversity. It's a diversity so-called in the name of promoting a secular progressive agenda to the exclusion of all the others. It wants uniformity of speech. It's also not really genuine inclusion. Because genuine inclusion would help people to treat those who disagree with them, those who think differently, those who have even you know, offensive ideas, it would help us to treat different people with dignity and respect, irrespective of the views they hold. I think that's what the Bible Society was trying to champion for with their albeit clunky video. Uh, there's a famous quote falsely attributed to Voltaire. Most people think it was Voltaire. Apparently it wasn't, but anyway. Uh, he said this, or is supposed to have said this, uh, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Surely that's a better approach, even if it wasn't Voltaire who said it. But if we want to create a diverse society that includes real people rather than just puppets who look different but all say the same thing because that's what they're allowed to say, surely it would be better to cultivate those kind of values, that kind of a culture, rather than silencing the different opinions. So there you go. That, I think, are just, at least as I've tried to understand it, I'm sure there are more reasons, but as I've tried to understand it, it seem to be two of the common reasons given in favour of limiting certain free speech, to protect the vulnerable and to promote diversity and inclusion. Um, I think there's some sense to them, but I don't buy them at the end of the day. Now, just as a side note, uh, you might have noticed that I haven't technically advocated for free speech yet. That's intentional. Because uh, before we think about what we should, you know, what Christian approach to free speech is, we actually need to step back and just ask, well, what does the Bible say about speech in general? Because that's actually going to help us form our own ideas about free speech and whether we should or shouldn't be for it. So, uh, that's what I want to do now. Uh, and again, under this heading, I want to explore three aspects of the Bible's teaching on speech that I think is going to help us formulate our own ideas about free speech more generally. Uh, the first one is just to recognize that speech can give life and it can take away life. According to the Bible, speech can give life and it can take away life. Uh, surprising to me how central speech is to the unfolding storyline of the Bible. I, I honestly hadn't really paid much attention to this until I started, started thinking about this topic. But once you see, like, oh man, speech is everywhere. And it plays a really important role in some of the key moments of salvation history, or sort of the unfolding of the Bible. So let's just think it through. Let's go um, creation for redemption. Where is speech in creation? Well, that one's pretty obvious, isn't it? Um, the Bible begins with God speaking creation into existence. So uh, Genesis 1, 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, right? God speaks, and there it is. He keeps going until he creates humanity, Adam and Eve, and he speaks them into existence. 
What's interesting is that God then gives Adam a kind of free speech, a free speech to name the animals. Take a look. Uh, Genesis 2.19, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Freedom. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Now it's not Adam's speech creating, but there's a sense in which Adam's speech there is part of his exercising dominion over creation. It's part of his ruling over creation by naming it. But now, contrast that to the fall. Because when you get to the fall, this time Satan, he also has freedom of speech. But he doesn't use his freedom of speech to rule, but to lead a rebellion against God and his creation. And so, come with me, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Satan comes along in the form of a serpent, and we read this. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Uh, Most of you will know. That question, doubting the goodness of God's speech, ultimately leaves Adam and Eve to sin against God with the result that they get kicked out of the garden and consequently plunge all of humanity under the curse of death as a whole. That's some pretty heavy consequences for allowing free speech in the garden, isn't it? You kind of almost wonder why God didn't just muzzle him. But it would seem that at least Satan had freedom in the garden to speak evil words even against the God who made it. But now consider redemption. So we've got kind of creation, fall, redemption. Again, speech, words will play a key part in this story. And so if we kind of scroll forward to the New Testament, to Jesus, many of you will know, Jesus is described as the Word of God. Uh, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, at, the, at the risk of kind of stretching the metaphor or the concept, you could, you could almost say God's Word or His speech Gave up his freedom, right? He didn't have freedom of speech, freedom of word. He became a man for our salvation. Now, that's interesting because Satan, it was Satan's freedom of speech and his words that led to our death, while it's God restricting the freedom of his speech, his word, that ultimately leads to our life. Just worth thinking about. But then then there's words about the word, or there's the speech about Jesus And what is done. And so in the New Testament, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know it's the New Testament that says it's the gospel, the words about Jesus that bring life. These are the words of eternal life. And so Jesus raises from the dead and he commissions his apostles, go out and tell people about me. Tell them about the forgiveness that is available through my death on their behalf. If they trust in me, there's a hope of resurrection in heaven. So go preach the gospel because words bring life. Now, Relatively simple exercise, just kind of creation for redemption. But it's fascinating, isn't it, just the the central role that words play. Words are powerful. Words can create when in the mouth of God. Words can give life. Words can redeem us from death. But they can also be used to blaspheme, to cast doubt, to do evil, and to lead to death. 
And therefore, at the very least, Christians need to have an interest in, a concern for words and what words are spoken and where they're spoken and to whom they're spoken to. We should care about words and speech. I think that's just the first thing that we can say about from the Bible. Second thing that I think the Bible allows us to say is that God will judge our speech. God will judge all of our speech. See, Christians will often promote uh, the freedom of speech in the public square. And for what it's worth, I think that's a good thing. But I do think we just need to appreciate the difference between having a moral right to do something and having a legal right to do something. Let me explain. Uh, It's not illegal to have an affair, but it is sinful. And so there's a sense in which you could say uh, someone has a legal right to have an affair, but they don't have a moral right to have an affair. The same is true when it comes to something like free speech. Uh, In Australia, we have the legal right to say all sorts of kinds of things. Now, we have the legal right to blaspheme, legal right to swear, legal right to lie, at least in certain circumstances, and even to seduce others into sin. But we don't have a moral right to do any of those things. Whether we call ourselves Christians or not, the Bible says that God will judge our words. So listen to what Jesus says uh, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 and 37. It says, I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Again, we may have the legal right to say all sorts of stuff, but we don't always have a moral right to it. Now, there's heaps more that we could say on that, but I think at the very least, this is a helpful reminder to all of us that we need to be very careful how we use whatever legal right of free speech we have, whether it's great or small. Because it doesn't matter what the law says. It doesn't matter how others treat us. Uh, Grace City, if you're here and you trust in Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, you do not have a moral right to lie to belittle, to slander, to gossip, or to use your words to tear down. If you follow Jesus, you have an obligation. That means you're not free. You have an obligation to use your words in a way that give life and builds others up. Third, third thing we can say about speech in the Bible is that, and this might sound slightly odd, God's not in favor of free speech in the church. God's not a favor of free speech in the church. You see, one of the slightly awkward things uh, for many advocates or Christian advocates of free speech is once you kind of realize what God, how it all applies in the church. You see, uh, consider what Paul tells Timothy and Titus about church leaders. Um, so to begin with, uh, in Titus 1, I'll show you a passage in a moment, Uh, Paul is outlining to a man named Titus the kind of church leaders he should look for and appoint to the churches in in the city of Crete. Um, And this is what we read. It says, He, that is the church leader, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? 
church leaders don't have freedom of speech. Did you notice at the top there? The leader is to hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught. In other words, church leaders don't have the freedom to get up and get creative with God's word. Uh, church leaders need to stick to one word. They don't get to add a little, you know, a little bit of their own spice and, and um, um, poetic license. No, no, no. Hold to the word as it was taught. This is the word. Stick to that. You speak that, that's what you speak. On top of that, notice they're also told you need to be able to refute and silence those who teach otherwise. That doesn't sound like a whole lot of free speech to me. Now, if you're wondering... Why would Paul limit free speech? So, you know, it's a good thing, isn't it? Well, I think, I think we get a hint from his instructions to Timothy in 2 Timothy. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, 6-18. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Notice the impact of false teaching. It spreads like gangrene. And it destroys the faith of some. In other words, the teaching of people like Hymenaeus and Philetus, we don't know who they were, but two guys who were clearly sort of spreading this idea, you know, the resurrection's already come, so the game is gone, you know, you missed it. That was destroying the faith of some and they gave up their faith in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul takes the issue of speech and what is said to Christian believers and in the church so seriously. All right, today's hashtag, words of violence. Uh, honestly, when I first came up with that, you know, I did some research, what, what would it, what's the hashtag? And I noticed a bunch of people using that phrase, words of violence. And I was like, well, that's silly. Uh, and I had a whole talk, well, at least in my head, planned for kind of showing you all the faults in that. I still think it's an unhelpful hashtag. But I, th I do think the more I've reflected on it, the more I've come to appreciate at the very least where they're coming from. Because certain kind of words, if spoken and believed, can do incredible damage. Not just to someone's mental state, but also to their eternal destiny. And so God says, you know, in the church, I want you to limit certain kinds of speech. Now, if you find that idea, uh, I'm not sure how I sit with that. Think about it with me like this. Uh, think about a family. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a dad, have two little kids, two and a half, four and a half. Um, there's no free speech in our family. Or maybe... I'm happy to limit certain kinds of speech. I have no interest in exposing my kids to all the weird and wonderful ideas in the world. And so while I can, I will gladly limit what they are exposed to, uh, whether that's TV shows, internet sites, ideas, even certain people. Now, I, I get it. Um, I can't, I won't be able to do that forever. And so part of being a good parent is actually about nurturing a child to have wisdom and discernment so that they can make up their own mind. But at least while I can, I'm going to limit free speech. I've got no problem silencing certain voices in our house while I can. I think that's just what a good parent does. Well, the church is God's household. 
and we're his kids. And so like a good father, God wants to ensure that his kids, his children, are grown and matured and nurtured on his words that give life, not Satan's lies that run the risk of uh, destroying the faith of the immature and undiscerning. And so again, God's not in favour of free speech in the church, at least not if that freedom is used to teach falsehood and destroy the faith of his kids. So we've done two things so far. So, you know, why would you limit free speech? Why do people say you should limit it? Okay, there's something in there, but I'm not convinced. Uh, Now we've just looked at the Bible. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says words are important, so we should care about it. God will judge our words, but actually in the church, it really matters what you should say. So what, what are some practical next steps if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus? I know not all of us are. Um, it is awesome to have you with us. Uh, please keep coming back. Uh, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to just be in the book of Ephesians, uh, not Ephesians Philippians. Uh, we'll just be working through a book of the Bible. This is a slightly different series for us, um, but delighted that all of you are able to be here for it. But if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus... Uh, what are some practical next steps? Well, let me offer three. Number one, I think we should advocate for free speech in the public square. I think we should advocate for free speech in the public square. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was at a gathering of Anglican ministers. This was a wild time, trust me. Um, and the bishop, uh, he was talking about the work that he and others were doing in lobbying the government. Uh, for sort of free speech and particularly sort of where things were at on the religious freedom bill. And at one point, someone put their hand up and, and basically said, look, you know, good on you for doing all this stuff, but do we really need to bother with this? I mean, shouldn't we sort of just get on and preach the gospel? Isn't, isn't that what's most important? And in one sense, I want to say yes, because as I'll argue in a moment, yeah, we should just get on and preach the gospel whether we're free to or not. But... I don't think that that means that we as Christians just throw our hands up and say, oh, well, we're going to lose the battle. Uh, No, I think we should continue to fight for free speech. And I have at least two reasons for it. Number one, the first and frankly the most important is that I think free speech more easily allows for the spread of the gospel. It more easily allows for the spread of the gospel. See, part of the reason the gospel spread so quickly in the early years of the church was that the pagan Romans were far more tolerant of speech and free speech than the zealous Jews. If you want want kind of a lesson on the benefits of living under a free speech regime, now it's far from absolute, but certainly more free than um, anything by the Jews, have a read of the book of Acts. Uh, in In the early years of the church, it was the Jews, not the Romans, who were persecuting the Christians and trying to limit what they were saying. Now the Romans get on board later, but early on, it's the Jews. And so again, I I think we should be advocates for free speech. So um, if and when the Religious Freedom Bill next comes up for discussion, I reckon write to your local member, tell them to get behind it, advocate for free speech. Second, the second reason I do think we should advocate for it is that free speech, I think, is most likely to lead to human flourishing. Free speech, rather than limiting it, is far more likely to lead to human flourishing, at least for now. Uh, now, this is going to take a bit of mental work, so try and stick with me here. But you might have noticed as you've been listening, you're like, hmm, Tim's being inconsistent. Uh, he, 
is okay with sort of limiting certain kind of speech in the church, but he doesn't think you should limit speech in the public sphere. Why is that? That seems inconsistent. Well, uh, it really comes down to what I call the difference between revelation and refinement. Let me explain. When it comes to the church, truth is a matter of revelation, by which I mean, at least in theory, if you're in the church, you've bought into the idea that God is the authority, that His Word is the revealed truth, revelation, and that humans flourish, humans uh, go best when we live in accordance with His Word. So we've all, at least in theory, bought into what the authority is. But in society, it doesn't work that way, does it? Uh, there's, there's no authority, there's no agreed, revealed truth that everyone's bought into. Actually, you've got different people with different ideas about where truth is found and different ideas about how the best life is to be lived. And so how do you, as a, as a society, decide what to do and, and what to decide? Well, the democratic approach is, you know, in contrast to revelation, is what I call refinement. Again, at least in theory, that's what's supposed to happen in our parliament. Because what happens? Well, bills are submitted and they're discussed and then counter-arguments are made and then changes are suggested and then in the end they pass a law that no one's really happy with. But sort of, it's been refined because everyone's had an opportunity to pitch in and, you know, democratically elected. And now it's far from perfect, but it's a whole lot better than the alternative. Because think about it, what's the alternative? It's basically totalitarianism. One group rides roughshod over the rest and forces everyone else into subservience. Now, we're a long way off that. I, think that, uh, I don't want to be fear-mongering. I think we are genuinely a long way off that, and praise God. But when you start limiting freedom of speech... That's usually how totalitarianism begins. And so there's a book by an American guy named Rod Dreher. The book is called Live Not By Lies. He, sort of, he's, he speaks to a bunch of people who sort of endured uh, the Soviet Union and uh, started noticing uh, they are picking up on all of this sort of what he's called soft totalitarianism. Sort of freedom of speech started to be limited and they're getting nervous because it reminds them of what they used to experience under Soviet, under communism. Which is kind of scary because uh, if the 20th century taught us anything, it's that at least this side of heaven, democracy is far more likely to lead to human flourishing than totalitarianism. Second, so first, I think we should advocate, if you're a Christian, I think advocate for it. If you get a chance, push for freedom of speech. Get your voice out. Second, uh, speak the truth in season and out of season. But as much as we should advocate for freedom of speech, we cannot let its presence or lack of free speech kind of dictate whether we talk about Jesus or not. Actually, we just got to talk about Jesus, talk the truth in season and out of season. So one of my favorite uh, passages in the book of Acts is where Peter and John are called before the Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish ruling council, because the, the Jewish rulers sort of found them preaching about Jesus in the temple. And so this is what happens. We read it in Acts chapter 4, verse 18 to 20. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, 
to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. I love that. They knew what we saw earlier. God's going to judge every word we speak. So they could either remain silent and risk the wrath of God, or they could speak and risk the wrath of the earthly authorities. And so what do they decide? Well, they say, you know what? Uh, Jesus said, don't fear him who can kill the body. Fear him who can kill the body and soul in hell. He's talking about God. So if I've got a big pick between religious leaders and God, I'll fear God every time. So you can do what you want. We're going to speak. We can't help but speak, so they say. Grace City, the greatest threat to God's church is not persecution or restrictions on speech. It's the possibility that we in the church allow the persecution, allow the freedom of speech to cow us into silence. I think that goes for what we say both inside the church and outside the church. Now, so let me encourage you don't give in to fear. Don't, get, don't let the current, the current climate or any further restrictions on speech, if they come, stop you from talking about Jesus with the people that you love. And if you're scared, that's okay. Pray for help. The apostles were scared too. You know, you read through the book of Acts. If you want to do a word search, by the way, uh, search uh, filling with the Spirit in the book of Acts. Every time someone is filled with the Spirit, it ha- it follows with, and they said. So filling with the Spirit, and they said. So people are afraid. They say, God, give us courage. They're filled with the Spirit, and they speak. Uh, filling the Spirit with the Spirit is God's empowerment for speaking His Word. If you're afraid, that's okay. So are the apostles. Rely on God, pray for His help, and then in His Spirit speak. Can I also encourage you... Don't stay silent on you know, social issues. Uh, we live in a democracy. And what that means is that you have as much right to share your opinion as everyone else. Grace City, the world needs your one-star reviews. They need it. Don't, don't silence it. Don't self-silence such that they only get the five-star reviews. Just because people don't share your convictions about revelation doesn't mean you can't contribute to the process of refinement. So next time you're at a dinner, next time you're at work, next time you're just hanging out with friends or at a family, and some sort of controversial topic comes up, have a big breath and try putting some ideas on the table. It's okay. They don't have to agree with you. It's about a process of refinement. Get the ideas out there and let's see what doors God might open. Third and finally, rejoice when you suffer for the sake of Jesus. Rejoice when you suffer for the sake of Jesus. Now, as secularism intensifies and the school bully starts throwing his weight around more and more, it's only natural that some of us are going to suffer for speaking about Jesus. Uh, It may look like being cancelled, losing your job, receiving death threats, maybe even being slandered. Uh, When that time comes, my prayer is that we will be able to respond as the apostles did. See, when James, sorry, when Peter and John uh, refused to keep silent, you know, they said, Who's it? Who are we going to obey? You or God? And they went out and kept talking. Um, the authorities rounded them all up again and had them flogged. And then they released them. And this is what happens in Acts chapter 5. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, 
rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. I love that. They rejoiced. Why? Not because they're masochists. There's nothing inherently good about suffering. They rejoice because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. Let that sink in. Have you suffered disgrace for Jesus? Have you suffered disgrace for Jesus? If you have, then that is because God has counted you worthy to suffer disgrace and share in the disgrace of his beloved son. Jesus was disgraced. If you've suffered disgrace on his name, that's like God's stamp of approval. You are worthy to be associated with my son. So wear it as a badge of honor. Rejoice. If you haven't, maybe it's worth asking why. Now, maybe your time just hasn't come yet. It'll come in the future. That's possible. Uh, but is it possible also that maybe you haven't suffered disgrace because you've silenced yourself? You've given in to fear. Now, one of the reasons we've done this series, certainly not the only reason, but one of the reasons we've done this series is to actually help you, to equip you to have certain conversations. So don't shrink back. Again, if you're scared, that's okay. So are the apostles. But they were empowered by God. And so you too, in his strength, can also be empowered. And so take a deep breath and speak out. And if you suffer disgrace, rejoice. Because what that means is that you too have been considered worthy of suffering disgrace for the one who suffered disgrace for you. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that even when we are cowardly and shy back and are afraid that you are strong, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who spoke the truth and in so doing and through his death secured life for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to treasure these words of life, to believe these words of life and to share these words of life even at great cost to ourselves because we know that you at great cost to yourself. Uh, sent your word into this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.